Welcome to It's Personal Finance Canada. I'm Christine Conway. And I'm Cameron Conway. And this podcast is a very personal look at personal finance in Canada. Hi, everyone, and welcome to It's Personal Finance Canada. This is Christine, and I'm here with Cameron today. And today we're going to talk to you about the different types of accounts that you can invest in. Well, what do you mean by different types of accounts, like checking accounts, savings accounts? I'm talking a little bit more big picture. So people have their RSPs. There's nothing more Canadian than an RSP. Their tax-free savings accounts, non-registered accounts, locked-in accounts. There's just so many out there. So what I wanted to do today was shed a little light on these different types that we have and when we might want to use different ones. I like our RSPs because it reminds me of pirates. RRSPs, defer the taxes. RRSPs are definitely one of the most favorite Canadian ways to save. And I mean, honestly, they've been around for quite some time now. So that's part of the reason I think that they're popular. And we can jump in and talk about those right off the bat if you'd like. But they fit within my number one rule for investment accounts, which is you want to choose an account that has preferential tax treatment. So that means you're looking at either an RRSP or a TFSA. And we'll talk about the TFSAs a little bit more later. So what makes these RRSPs so special? And what do you mean they're tax preferred? Do you get an extra little gold star from the CRA if you use them? Well, they're, um, they're called RRSPs or Registered Retirement Savings Plans because they're registered with the CRA. So really, that's, that's the big trick. And the registered part, all that really means is the CRA is tracking how much you're using them just to make sure that you're not using them more than you should be. Well, how much am I allowed to use it then? Sure. So every person can put in up to 18% per year and there's kind of an overarching higher amount that uh, kind of acts as a cap at the top. It's an annual limit and it changes every year. So in 2021, that was $27,830 and that would be reduced by RSP and it would also be reduced by any money that went into a pension on your behalf or into a group RRSP or really any kind of savings for your retirement. But who has group plans and pensions and all that at work anymore? Are we kind of just on our own most of the time? A lot of us are, you know, so that's why it's really important to look at these different types of accounts and when we might want to use some of them more than others. So for the person that you just mentioned that maybe doesn't have a group plan or doesn't have a pension at work and is just on their own for savings, we all know how difficult it is to save these days, right? We're kind of scrimping and saving, trying our best to get by, and sometimes long-term savings, like retirement, seems to be the last thing on people's lists. Well, even just going back a couple of weeks ago to one of our last podcasts where most people are spending all their time saving for a house. So retirement kind of falls by the wayside in all this. And it does kind of get pushed down the line, which is why it's really important to talk about it just to get it back in the forefront of people's minds. Because I always like to remember people or like to try and remind people that you're actually funding 
30 plus years of your life where there's no paycheck coming. But let's talk for a second about people that should not use an RRSP. And that's kind of what you were hinting at there. If someone has a lower income, then an RSP might not be the right fit for them. And what do I mean by low income? Um, there's the basic personal amount. We've got one here in BC and there's a federal uh, amount as well. In BC, it's it's just under 14400 for 2022. And the federal, it basically is going up to 15000 by 2023. And what that basic amount is, is you get, it's called a non-refundable tax credit. And that's a bunch of mumbo jumbo that says, if you earn less than that amount, so let's use the federal $15,000 in 2023. If you earn less than that, you can reduce your tax bill to $0. But let's say you had more credits then, and it would take you beyond that zero, you don't get money back. So you don't get that refund back, which is why it's called non-refundable. So the goal is to have a job where you only make 15K a year? No, um, but I'm just saying for someone that's earning that amount and that's it for the year. And I mean, that could be a number of people with COVID, right? Some people were laid off. They had limited earnings during the year, or maybe they just received some of these partial curb benefits if income was at that level or lower. And of course, the the personal amounts will vary by province, but um, there's absolutely no good reason to put money in an RSP in that tax year because there's nothing to reduce. There's no tax credit. There's no room for further deduction, which is why you would use an RRSP. So then who would benefit from using an RRSP if you're making more than the 15K a year and you actually have a full-time job? Yeah, absolutely. So there actually is kind of a sweet spot that I like to look at. And when I'm looking at this, I'm going to talk again about BC because that's where we are here. So what I do is I look at the combined BC and federal tax rates, which sounds much more complicated than it is. But basically what you're trying to look at is your marginal tax rate, which just says how much tax am I going to pay on the next dollar earned? And basically, if we're looking at 2022, if someone had an income in BC of just over 43000 so $43,070, they're paying tax at about 20%. And between the, that, that threshold there and up to 50197 the tax is about 22.7%. So you can see there that the taxes are fairly low. And after that, so after you've kind of crossed that uh, 50200 that's when it starts increasing to the 28%. And then the more you earn, the more you pay because tax rates in Canada are progressive. So it just means they go up as you earn more. So who could benefit from an RSP? I would say it's most beneficial for someone over that second tax bracket. So someone that's earning more than say 50,200, and these numbers can change as the tax brackets change year over year. But below that, you could find yourself in a position where you're putting money in, you're getting your tax deduction, but when you take it out down the road, you're still paying the same tax rate. So you could still be in that lowest tax bracket or the one just above it. And then there's really not one of the big advantages of an RSP that you can use. And that is to pay less tax now 
and then benefit from the deferral, which means your money can grow without being taxed for the whole length of time that you've got it in the plan. But then the ultimate goal is to take it out at a lower tax rate. Does that kind of make sense? Uh, yeah, for the most part. Yeah. So basically you're looking at, at three different things. The first thing is making sure that you'll put the money in and get a refund at a lower rate than when you'll take the money out later on. That's kind of the big trick number one with an RRSP. So if I'm understanding this right, so let's say I put $5,000 into an RRSP. I get a $5,000 tax credit for this year. And then all that $5,000 goes into account where it can grow untouched until I finally decide to take it out and then it gets taxed. Because otherwise that $5,000, you take off a third and what's left could go to investments. But this way, the entire 5,000 can go and grow and just get taxed at the very end, right? Yeah. And it's actually, it's a tax deduction that you get. So what that means is it reduces the amount of tax that you're paying. And um, so let's say like in your example, let's say you had a salary of $50,000, you put in the 5,000 into your RSP. Well, now your taxable income is going to be the 45,000 instead of the $50,000. Which can be good sometimes because if you kind of play it right, it can actually drop you down a bracket. Exactly. And that is very much the name of the game. And that is how we determine not only who should put money into an RSP, but how much. Because like I said, once you get into those lower tax brackets, you're really kind of minimizing the opportunity because you're not getting as much back as you could had you put it in when your income was higher or in an, a one-off year where you may have received a taxable severance or some other lump sum amount that would really increase your taxable income for that year. So when you do put money in your RSP, what you're actually getting back in a lot of cases is tax that you've already paid. So most people, it sounds a little silly, but most people have tax withheld from their paychecks and it's, you kind of get used to it, right? You get used to the amount that's going into your bank account every two weeks and you don't really think about your gross, your before tax, before deduction amount. So because this tax has already come off the top, now that you've made an RSP contribution, you're really just getting it back. And if you get enough of it back, do you get a refund at the end of the year? You do. Yeah. So that is a positive thing. And there's also with an RSP, let's say you've gotten, you've put in more than you think it makes sense for you to use in that year. You can actually carry forward the usage to a future year. So you don't necessarily have to take the full deduction because if you get into a situation where you're getting too much money back, uh, you may have dropped yourself into a lower tax bracket where once again, you're minimizing the percentage of tax that you're getting back. I mean, that's not to say that no one loves a good refund. We certainly do. Uh, but to a certain extent, it does mean that you've overpaid taxes that year. So all this sounds well and good, but what happens if I put too much money into an RRSP in a single year? If you take too much and you've gone over that limit. So let's say you've used up all of your RSP contribution and you've gone over that 27,000 and change, which is the maximum for this year, you can get penalized. And this is something that the CRA tracks. So I do always encourage people to look at their MyCRA account if you visit that online, or even just your notice of assessment, which is the sheet of paper that you get back 
after you filed your tax return, once someone has looked at it, where they basically say, yep, you're doing A-OK, or nope, we've reassessed your account, and guess what, you owe some money, or here, we're giving you back a little bit more. Um, but that notice of assessment will give you the figure of what you have unused. If you are over, then you can be assessed penalties. So there's about a $2,000 wiggle room that they'll give you, but then you're taxed at about 1% per month for whatever period of time that that excess amount is in your account. So you really, really, really don't want to leave it in there. It's a bit of a hassle, but it's certainly worth it to get that money out if you have gone over. Uh, but let's continue with our conversation and talking about um, maybe people that should not use the RSP. You know, and it's it's a little contrarian because, like I said, nothing is more Canadian than an RSP. People here seem to love them. And it was the only game in town for years and years and years. But um, going back to your very first example where you were the saying... Pirates? Not the pirates. Not the pirates. Where you were talking about someone who maybe didn't have a pension at work and didn't have group savings, and were really all on their own. So all of their retirement savings is going to come down to what they can do for themselves. And if you put that same person in the position where, like you said, they're trying to save for a down payment, maybe they're trying to put their own kids through school, through post-secondary, there might not be a lot left to save. So in those situations where people enter retirement with very little saved, there is a bit of a reliance on the government benefits that become available to people uh, as early as 60, but 65 is kind of the number for the bigger ones. But um, a lot of the government benefits care about two things. They're looking at your marital stas status, which is really just because they want to know if there's two people earning an income or collecting a benefit in your household. But they're also looking at your total income. And your income is very important because it will determine whether or not you meet these thresholds to qualify for some of these government benefits. And if you find yourself in a position where your income is too high because, let's say, you put money into an RSP and you've deferred it for all these years and then you turn 71... The government starts to say, okay, you know, you've had all this great deferral, time to pay some tax. So money has to start coming out of these plans at the absolute latest age 72. So you're converting them over at 71 to something that's going to produce income. That's usually either an annuity, which is very similar to a pension plan, or a registered retirement income fund, which is where people get a percentage of the total balance in their account back every month. And then anything left in there eventually gets taxed and paid to your, your beneficiaries. If I'm understanding this right, you're saying that you can only have your RSP running for so long. And then when you turn 71, they force you to convert into a RIF and you have to start taking withdrawals out of it. So you can't just keep this money locked away indefinitely. That's right. And that's where the government benefits kind of come into play. So the big one is the guaranteed income supplement. And that's for people that are over age 65. And the qualifying threshold, and keep in mind that this changes every year, but um, right now, if you're single, widowed, or divorced, so if it's just you and your household, the threshold is about $19,248. So that's pretty low, right? So that's really a person that is just 
just receiving government benefits. Um, and maybe they have money in a tax-free savings account that they're also taking income from on a regular basis, but that does not show up on your tax return. So you can't actually, it would not affect qualification the way that a withdrawal from an RRSP or a RIF would. And it's it's not chump change we're playing for either. The maximum payout for a guaranteed income supplement is just under nine hundred and fifty bucks per month. Uh, if you're if you're single, and it's it's lower if you're a couple. It's about half five hundred and uh, sorry more than half five hundred and seventy one dollars. And the the income test goes up as well to to the mid twenty five thousand dollar range. But um, that's something that if you have more taxable income than you would have otherwise. That could affect your ability to qualify. Uh, there's also the um, the old age security benefit, which is something that's very familiar to Canadians. And that's one that has a threshold on the higher end where let's say your income is higher, so you're not receiving the guaranteed income supplement, but you could be in a position where your old age security gets clawed back if your income is over just over 79,000 this year. Uh, and it'll be gone completely if your income exceeds 128,000 and change. And that's again this year, uh, because this does, this does adjust annually. So it's, it's a bit of a moving target. The amounts are always different. So those are things that you want to consider. It's not necessarily just putting the money in and getting that tax deduction. It's making sure that you're using the type of account that makes the most sense. So if we pop over to TFSAs that we kind of touched on briefly here, you know, they started out small and people really weren't maybe giving them the attention that they needed because it was originally just $5,000. And, you know, that, that doesn't really move the needle for a lot of people. But if you were 18 when the plan started in 2009 and you've been getting your contribution room every single year, by 2022, that's $81,500. So if you've got two people and they each have TFSAs that they've been maxing out over these years, then it becomes a significant amount that you can play with. So I love TFSAs for two different reasons. The first is they are an excellent way to save and watch your money compound and then take it out tax-free down the road. So when we're talking about deferrals for RRSPs, take out the deferral part. This is just fully tax-free. So I like, if someone tells me they're using their TFSA for long-term savings or for eventual legacy reasons to pass to their children, I love putting the highest growth assets in a TFSA because you want to maximize, you've only got so much contribution room, so you want to maximize how much you can keep tax-free as long as possible. So you're saying your experience, do you prefer putting like managed equities or seg, or seg funds like that into TFSA instead of like bonds or GICs? That's right. When this, the um, TFSAs first came out, you saw the banks we had so many people that, you know, would say to us, we've got this TFSA being offered to us at the bank. And they really didn't realize that you can hold such a wide range of product within either a TFSA or even an RRSP. And we saw a lot of people put GICs in these TFSAs, which in my mind is a great underutilization because 
A, interest rates are so, so low. So yes, you're not paying tax, but you're not paying tax on a couple bucks. So what was what was the point, right? Is that something that would have been better served in in your bank account, in your regular checking account or something like that, because your tax bill would be very minimal and maybe the TFSA could be used for something else. So going back to my number one rule where you want to use a tax preferred account, it's an RRSP or it's a TFSA and TFSAs hold a lot of great advantages for people who in their later years, when they're trying to control their income, want to take out lump sums. So think about it this way. Just picture yourself as retired. So you've stopped working, life is good, but you know maybe you don't have a pension, you're living off of your own savings right now, and you're trying to keep your old age security, and you know you can't bump your income up over a certain threshold, but this is the year that you wanted to take a nice vacation, maybe it's a big wedding anniversary, but your car just broke down and your roof needs to be fixed. So there's a number of things that will require big chunks of change, like big lump sum withdrawals of cash. And where's it going to come from? I love TFSAs for this type of reason, because it's not going to show up on your tax return. And that can be a really, really good thing. Well, in some ways, this could be a better alternative than sort of like the HLOC way people go. They have a big bill and they just take a line of credit out against their house, but you're stuck paying interest on that. If you actually build up and take care of your TFSA, you can just take that money out. You'll still have money there accruing interest and you just pay it back at your leisure without any kind of penalties. Exactly. And I mean, there's other good benefits too. Like a lot of people, we've talked about downsizing before, and we've talked about people that eventually need to move into uh, care or uh, you know, in, in BC here, we have income tested facilities where kind of the, the standard is they'll look at your tax return and take about 80% of your income. TFSA does not show up on your tax return, right? And even a non-registered plan, uh, non-registered. So if, if we said RSP is registered with the CRA so that they can control how much you put in, non-registered basically just means that it's not. So it's it's a saving type that's not tax preferred. And what that means is you're going to pay tax each year on any income that you've generated within that account. So any growth or any gains. Yeah, you're being charge tax, but you're also dealing with capital gains. You're dealing with uh, dividend income taxes. You're dealing with a whole bunch of different things that you don't have to really worry about with a TFSA. So with a lot of people, it's better to like kind of max out your TFSA and then you can go the non-registered route later, where a lot of people they do it the other way around. They have their non-registered, but they never use their TFSA, so they're stuck dealing with capital gains, dividend income, basic income tax, and all that. Yeah, and that's a huge missed opportunity. Since the TFSAs are available to us, if you're eligible to open one, why wouldn't you kind of thing, right? Because like we said, you can you can invest in most assets that you would want to invest in in a non-registered anyways. So that can be segregated funds, which is something that we use quite a bit for estate planning at our practice, which is um, it's a very, very efficient way to pass money to the next generation. You can hold mutual funds, you can hold ETFs, you can hold a whole wide range. And even some companies will let you hold just stocks through your TFSA. Yeah, you know, and if we're circling back to RRSPs, um, self-directed RRSPs were very popular because some people want that ability to manage things themselves. 
But going back to non-registered plans here, capital gains, that's kind of one of these these big uncertain question marks right now, right? When when we're talking about the capital gains inclusion weight, so half of it, it's 50% right now, which means half of your gain or growth is taxable. But the government can change that just by means of a policy change, you know, kind of whenever they want. And with our federal debt being at a record high, that's definitely something that is probably going to be grabbing people's attention in the near future. So when you use a non-registered counts, you really are leaving the taxation in someone else's hands to a certain extent because you can't control what that tax rate is going to be and what the inclusion in your income is going to be. So like Cameron said, I love the idea of TFSAs first and then non-registered as a last resort. And the RSPs fit kind of somewhere in the middle, depending on what your income will be during retirement. And I think that that is something that more people, it really serves you well to do an income, retirement income projection, just so that you can kind of ballpark where your income is going to be, because that will really help you make a lot of these other decisions about how much should I put in my RSP given that I could have tax-deferred growth for whatever the period of time is from now until your retirement. But if you do decide that an RSP is the right fit for you, there are kind of other variations of RSPs that you might want to look into as well. Spousal RSPs are something that we've seen uh, very underutilized, and they're an incredible tool. A spousal RSP is basically where you have a couple that is either married or in a common law relationship, and one of the two partners earns significantly more than the other. So, or maybe one is a stay-at-home parent. Um, but in either case, there's a difference, a significant difference in income. And for this strategy to work well, the higher income earning spouse has to have some room available to make a contribution because the contribution will reduce their unused RSP contribution room and not their spouses. So basically, if I'm the higher income earning spouse in this scenario, I would put money in to an RSP on Cameron's behalf, I would get the tax deduction. But the the money that I've put into the RSP becomes his property. So I'm actually giving that over to him and down the road when we're both retired, instead of just me taking out from my RRSP, which couldn't push me into a high tax bracket, we now have two registered products, two RRSPs to take out of. So now he and I can both move through the lower tax bracket all the way up or as far as our income goes uh, so that we're really splitting the income. We're splitting the effect of taxation between two people. And that's just one of the benefits of if you're married or like I said, in a common law relationship, you can use that to your advantage. And it really does help lower your overall tax bill during retirement. Another great use of RSPs, if um, you have a group plan at work. Now, We've seen group plans become quite a bit more popular. And I mean, it's it's a product that we do as well. Maybe that's why we're seeing it. But um, fewer employers, unless you're part of the public sector, are willing to make that commitment to give you a defined benefit pension plan anymore. And what a defined benefit pension plan is, 
is it's a product that basically says when you're 65, you'll get X amount of dollars and they guarantee that for the rest of your life. Now that can have huge unfunded liabilities that can cost the company lots and lots of money or in this case, the government. So there's been a shift away from these. Yeah, with defined benefit, it's essentially you're guaranteed to get a certain amount no matter what happens in the markets. But at the same time, companies are unwilling because of the cost, or you have other examples such as uh, when Sears folded a couple years ago, there are still all those pension liabilities that are being fought out in court right now. So you need the company to survive and you need the markets to cooperate, which is why a lot of non-government employers have kind of pulled away from this. And what they've been doing instead is these group RSPs, and most of them are structured with a match. And what a match is, it's basically the employer saying, we're going to offer you up to a certain percentage of your income. So it might be 1%, 2%, 5%, but you're only going to get that from us if you also put in that same amount up to the maximum. So the 1%, 2%, 5%. And a lot of people kind of scratch their heads and go, geez, do I really want 5% less in my take-home pay? But they miss that it could actually be 10% compounding on their behalf for as long as they remain with that employer. Yeah, I believe legally that after two years, you get to keep all of it. Yes, that's right. That's a vesting requirement and that's pretty standard. And Essentially, what it means is if you leave before the two-year mark, you would just get what you put in back, your own contributions. So in our example, that's your 5%. But if you've stayed past that two-year mark, then that money becomes vested to you. So it becomes your property. And at that point in time, if you leave, you would get that full 10%. And depending on how the plan is structured, there may be a requirement to transfer it over into a locked-in plan. That's a whole other conversation for a different day, but basically it, it has minimums and maximums and a bunch of rules around what you can take out and when. So we'll let that one be for now. But group plans with a match, always a great idea. If you have a group RSP, please talk to your HR and find out if you're maximizing your usage in that plan. There's also usually a representative with the company that uh, is doing your group RSP that can talk to you if you have any concerns about if you're investing in the right thing in your RSP or if what you've chosen is appropriate for you. Because one of the downsides of these things is you're kind of usually left alone to select it yourself. Uh, unless you take that step proactively to talk to a representative from the company. And not just for employees, but also any small business owners. This is also a great way to help retain employees and to act as like a reward system because it's getting harder and harder to keep employees in a lot of sectors right now. And any kind of added benefit like this can actually go a pretty long way. It can. And it's, it's one of those goodwill things, right? It makes everybody feel good. And, you know, we've seen some cases where employers are used to giving like a small cost of living adjustment. It it might be under 1% or something like that. But uh, sometimes they'll just view this as part of the same thing. So it's just something that has to be done to keep your employees interested so that they don't go to the competition. And there is another benefit of having money in your RSP. If you are trying to get into that home for the first time and yourself and your partner or your common law spouse um, or, or marriage partner have not yet owned a home, 
you can actually use your RSP for up to $35,000 that you can borrow from yourself without having to have this be taxable. Um, and you get 15 years to pay it back. And that's a really good advantage because when you're saving with an RSP, we were talking about how you get that refund, right? So depending on where your income lies, you might be getting 20% back, you might be getting 30% back, you might be getting more. What a lot of people will do if they have a goal like using the home buyer's plan is they'll put money in the RSP with the idea that they won't go over that $35,000 limit. And then they'll use the refund that they got from putting that money in the RSP to put it back in the RSP, generate more of a refund. And it actually gets them to that $35,000 goal faster because not only are you using your contributions, you're accelerating it by also using your tax refund. And when we do this kind of planning for people, we'll look at where they fall in the tax brackets and we'll look at how to maximize that. So we'll set up a certain dollar amount that they should put in each year over a period of a couple of years just to get that taken care of for them. There's also the lifelong learning plan, which works in a very similar way to the home buyer's plan. And it's for people, even adults, that are looking to go back to an accredited post-secondary education. That one has a maximum of $10,000 that you can take out per year for a couple of years. So it's, it's a bit of a lesser benefit, but um, still useful to some people. All this sounds great, but how do I actually get an RSP or a TFSA? Do I just go downtown and yell in the streets, hey, give me an RSP and someone from some financial firm will come downstairs or how does this all work? Yeah, I mean, lots of people do them at their banks. My my big concern there is you might be getting the flavor of the week uh, and maybe not necessarily the financial planning advice that could go with that. And with the... Mutual funds, the new know your product regulations, a lot of banks are actually getting rid of a vast majority of their investment offerings. Almost all the third party stuff is gone. So you're getting a very, very small pool of options now. That's right. We've always been advocates of using an independently owned and operated firm, which full disclosure, we are. But I think the big advantage there is I'm contracted with a number of these big banks, as well as a number of other companies as well across Canada. So we can really take a high level view, look at product, look at fit. And there's such a huge range of funds available. Um, we like managed funds solutions, but we also have passive funds for people that like to follow the indexes and just do some benchmarking at much lower fees than you would if you had like an actively managed solution. So we always encourage people to shop around. And if they come to our door, we can kind of show them that, you know, we have a lot to choose from. And that really does help us give a better fit. With an independent firm like yours, you can kind of show people the good, the bad, and the ugly from about a dozen different carriers and banks, right? Absolutely. So I always encourage people to get a second opinion and to make sure that they're getting advice. Because whether you do it at the bank or you do it at an independent planning firm like ours, you are paying fees in the form of the management expense ratios if you're using a fund to invest. And we want to make sure that you're getting good value for the money that you're paying. So we always offer 
our planning services as part of the package when someone chooses to use us for their investments. So rather than saying, okay, yes, we're going to bill you X amount of dollars, we like to keep our phone lines open so that people feel comfortable calling us at any point in time when things change or when they just want to chat about what's going on in their lives and how it impacts their finances. So we're always available. We're always happy to meet new people. And you can check us out at brawnfinancial.com. We've got lots of content that's coming up on a regular basis. So feel free to follow us on social media, uh, subscribe and uh, check it out. We're happy to continue to give you little nuggets and share little bits of information here and there. And hopefully one day we'll get to meet you in person. So until then, take care and all the best. <music>